You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. All right, good morning. Boy, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, Brian and I were going back and forth this week about this service, and he said he was going to sing a Huey Lewis song. I thought he was kidding. He was dead serious. And I think it's just God, because God knows I was a huge Huey Lewis fan back in the day. Because we all know the 80s were the best decade for music ever, right? So I asked him next time to do Pat Benatar, Love is a Battlefield. I don't know. We'll cross our, feet, cross our fingers on that one. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, can you hear me okay? Sound on? Okay. Uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you are a guest with us today, welcome to South Bay Church. We are so happy you're here. Come back every week to see us. Uh, we have a gift for you if you are a guest. So please stop by our welcome station right outside the door. We have, I'm told, a new addition to our gift bag, which comes from one of our culinary students, Shannon Weekly. And Shannon has uh, baked something for our first-time guests, and it's only for first-time guests. So Kerwin, I don't want to see you out there. So stop by and get one. So as Brian said, we're wrapping up our series called Relation Shift. I thought we should call it Time Shift. And I'm glad all of you are here with smiling faces. The singers were a little tired this morning, but they, got, they turned it up at the end there. Uh, I think we're all dragging a little bit, an hour behind, but uh, here we are. Uh, and this Relation Shift sermon series, I have a confession. <clears throat> And at first, I wasn't sure that I cared for the title relationship as a sermon series. But let me just tell you how the idea came to pass, how we came up with this. Um, you know, as you know, my, my wife, me, and I went in the ministry about six months ago. And, and I think before I was in the ministry, I had this idea of how sermon series are created. And I had this image of, of Steve and Brian going up the mountaintop to confer with God. And it was a holy experience of which no man can speak. And I then saw them coming down the mountaintop with their tablets of sermons <laughs> to present those. But now that I'm actually in the ministry, I know how the sausage gets made now. Okay? <laughs> and it does, it does indeed involve, right? It does indeed, I'm going to tell secrets. It does indeed involve going to a mountaintop, which is good. The Coastal Alley staff men spent about 24 hours on a mountaintop last fall praying, amen, and brainstorming about our various sermon series for the year. Last fall was my first, first such experience, and we'd reached about hour 23 of our 24-hour time together, and we had a lot of good ideas. We were brainstorming, it was flowing, but we still needed one more, and we knew we needed a sermon series on the importance of relationships in our increasingly social media world. And we just couldn't think of a name for it. And I think Brian was the one that said, well, what about relationship? Thanks, Brian. Thank you. And we all said, amen. That's great. That's incredible. And so we all came down the mountain, our faces glowing, and we were all fired up about our sermon series. And then we got down the mountain, and I think we showed Jackie the list of sermons, and she said, relationship? Seriously? <laughs> amen. So I don't think she was too fired about the title. But I started to think of an analogy of what it's like. It's kind of like when you go to a grocery store late at night and you're, you're hungry when you go to the grocery store. You ever done that? And you just want to get in and out. But then the things that you would normally never buy start looking attractive. You know, the, the cheese Whiz and the Cool Ranch Doritos and the, and, the, and the pickles all together at the same time. 
and they look delicious and everything looks great and then you wake up the next morning and your wife sees what you bought and she says, what were you thinking? <laughs> it looked great last night, honey. That's the way it was with the relationships. It looked great on the mountaintop, that's all I can tell you. But notwithstanding the title, I think the series has been great. Brian talked about the innovation of loneliness. God is a God of relationship. Steve talked about blue truth. Uh, we need to, you know, truth in our relationships. Dustin talked about wireless connection. We need to real connection with each other. And it's, it's true, we do need to stay connected to each other. And we need to work to maintain godly relationships in our increasingly complex world. And I think we all know that. We know that building and maintaining relationships is so very important. So why do we struggle with it? Why do we struggle with maintaining strong relationships? I know I do. And I've been thinking about why. And I think, again, very few of you are going to dispute today that you need strong relationships to be encouraged, to, to build your faith. But there's the harsh reality of life, isn't there? The harsh reality of life creates a lot of barriers to getting truly connected. And I know how it feels to be stretched too thin. I mean, well, there's no time to build relationships. I mean, when I was working in the corporate world, I know what it's like. I know what a lot of you go through. You, you work 50 hours, you commute 10 to 12 hours a week, and then you're expected to go build relationships in the church, and it's hard. It's difficult. Um, even when you want to have deep relationships, it can be hard to find the time to do it. Well, we're going to look in the first, uh, first John this morning, and we're going to be focused on chapter 4 primarily. And let's look in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So love shows that we are born of God and that we know God. But John gives us some indication in this scripture that loving can be a challenge for people. Because he says, whoever does not love does not know God. So he clearly says that it's possible not to love. It's possible. And he also says, not that we loved God. So one could conclude if, that we have a, if we have a hard time loving God, it's going to be hard for us to love people as well. So we probably aren't very good at, at loving in our natural state. But how do we break free from that? And how do we really love as the Bible says we should love? That's the subject of my sermon today, which I've entitled, Love is the Answer, hence Brian's song. And there's three things that we're going to talk about today. First, we're going to talk about why we should love. What should our motivation be to love? Next, we'll talk about how we should love. How do we give and receive love? And thirdly, we'll talk about what is the outcome when we really love. Why do we love? How do we love? What's the outcome when we love? Three very seemingly simple questions that I think require us to do some deeper exploring of the scriptures together. So let's pray as we get started. Father God, we just uh, come to you today asking you to please give us insights into your word, God. Help us to, to really see what you intended love to be, what our motivation for love needs to be, and most importantly, how we love and what is the outcome of love. God, I just pray that the, the scriptures would speak to us today, uh, that your word would speak to us today, and we'd go away renewed, strengthened, encouraged, and ready to love one another the way you intended. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first question was, why do we love? Why should we love? And you know, again, I always start with the cynic. That's kind of my, my nature, I guess. I start with the cynic. The cynic would say, I love my wife, 
I love my kids. I love my country. I love my Jesus. I'm doing just fine with love. Thank you very much. Let me give you a newsflash, though, is that you do not get a medal from Jesus just for loving the people that love you back. Okay? You don't get a medal from Jesus for loving those who love you back. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus called his followers to a new and a deeper kind of love. Uh, a love in which we even love our enemies. In John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. John very concisely sums up what our motivation should be to love because he first loved us. And I think John calls us back here into a proper view of our position before God. It's not that we are home, holy and blameless. He is. And to have the right motivation to love, we need to be grounded in who he is and who we really are. And just briefly go back to the beginning with me, shall we? I mean, long ago, before the creation of the world, you know the story, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to break the one command that God gave them. And something inside of our soul was lost at that moment in time. I mean, God knew at that point that sinful man and sinful woman had seriously and fatally missed the mark. So he removed Adam and Eve from the beautiful garden of paradise where he lived with them, and sinful man could no longer be in the presence of a holy God. And unfortunately, we are descended from Adam and Eve. We're all related to Adam and Eve. We're all related. Don't think about that too long because you'll get creeped out. Does that mean your wife is your cousin? I don't know. But the point is, the point I'm trying to make is that you and I we're descended from sinners. We're descended from sinners. And your guilt can be an uncomfortable thing to face, can't it? You may even be resisting it while you're sitting there today. Because you may say, well, why would I be guilty of what two people did eons ago? I had nothing to do with Adam and Eve and what they did in the garden. And you see, that's where we go wrong. Because one of our bedrock values in America is personal responsibility. And I think that can cloud our understanding of guilt sometimes. Because... Other cultures understand that children can be responsible for the sin of their parents and the sin of their forefathers. And that's a foreign concept to us because as Americans, it's all about personal responsibility. But it's not at all a foreign concept in the Bible. You just see a glimpse of it in, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 when God says that he punishes sins to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. So we can suffer from those that came before us. And we're still suffering the fallout of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And another reason why we struggle with admitting our guilt, I think, is because our culture and even our judicial system presumes innocence. So we're presumed innocent until proven guilty, and that's a good thing, right? That is a good thing. But the one unintended consequence of that is that we hate judgment. We hate to be judged. How often do you hear somebody say, don't you judge me? <laughs> I just feel so judged right now. Don't judge me. Don't be judging. But here's my point. If we don't fully admit our guilt before God... I don't know if we can really understand the love of God because we won't understand or appreciate what we've been forgiven of. So we, because of our sins, guys, we are con condemned. I mean, we're condemned to be eternally separated from God unless we are rescued and pardoned for what we've done. And, and personally, I, I am a self-accused person, as my wife Mia knows, but the longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize that I'm just like Adam and Eve. I mean, Jesus died for me, and he left a very simple command, the greatest command, to love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love my neighbor 
as, my, as myself. So I intellectually understand that I should love God and love others, but I, I fall miserably short of that, and, and I see that. And just a few examples, I mean, I get frustrated with my wife and kids, and I can lash out on them in anger sometimes. It's not loving. And uh, Mia says, amen. And, and I mean, at times I've corrected my kids more out of a spirit of annoyance than a spirit of love. Um, I've at times failed to show love to some men in the church. And I, I oftentimes take the path of least resistance. I don't invest in strong relationships the way I should sometimes. And that's hurt people who want to get closer to me. And this, this week I had to apologize to, to some people um, in my life for not being more engaged with them on a relationship level. I've at times allowed myself to get attitudes with people who hurt me. And my sin is I don't always settle accounts quickly. And I tend to not tell people that they've hurt me and I bottle it in and then my heart grows harder and harder towards that person. And at times I, I've even walked by opportunities to, to, to reach out to people and share my faith with them and love them in that way. So it's obvious to me that I am guilty before God. I mean, I do fall dreadfully short of loving the way that he loves, he wants me to love and the way he loves. You know, I appreciate Aaron Doty today and his communion. I mean, I love his humility. It's just his, his willingness to tell his stories and just, you know, confessing. Hey, the struggle doesn't end at baptism. That's just the starting line, right? We all struggle throughout our life as a Christian sometimes in our faith. But you see, God knows that you and I need to be rescued. I mean, we have to be rescued, redeemed, saved from our sin. And, and he's always known that. He's known that for us to get it, to really get love, he would have to demonstrate what true love really was. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, and now this, is, this is the New American Standard Bible here. It says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So we see here, God sent, again, his only son into the world. And this son, think about it, this was the son who was with God at the creation of the world, before the creation of the world. He humbled himself to become a poor man in the ancient Middle East. And he, <laughs> he died a criminal's death for you and for me. Full stop. Just stop with that for a minute. Is that not amazing? Is there any other religion where we have a God that loves us enough to actually become one of us and die in our place? Just ponder that. I mean, that's amazing. You know, John says here that, he, that God sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't use propitiate every day. So I had to look that up. I am propitiating you. But to propitiate means to win or regain the favor of someone, like God, by doing something that pleases them. So re regaining the favor of someone by doing something that pleases them. So Jesus regained our favor with God by doing what pleased him. He lived a perfect life, pleasing to God. And he suffered the punishment that you and I deserve. He was the perfect sacrifice. So think about Jesus, and then think about him some more, and then think about him some more. I mean, if you're a disciple or a follower of Jesus, God is pleased with you. He is pleased with you because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
when God looks at a disciple of Jesus, he sees Jesus himself. A disciple isn't just pardoned by God. A disciple gets the reward for Jesus' perfect life. We get the reward for Jesus' perfect life. We get the eternal life that only Jesus really deserves. And that, my friends, is the amazing gospel. I mean, that is the good news that we believe and we proclaim. That's why we want to go out and make disciples of all nations, right? Because we should never, ever let this good news become cliche. It is why we're here. It's why we have faith. And in light of the good news, I mean, why? The good news that we have, I mean, do you begin to see why we should love others? I mean, when you ponder and meditate on what Jesus has done for you, how can you not follow his example and joyfully love others? I mean, here's another way to think about it. Have you ever felt pardoned, forgiven, you know, clemency? You know, I, I felt the goodness and relief of being pardoned when, when I had done something wrong and deserved to suffer the consequences. This is how I felt, most importantly, the, the, the morning of January 10th, 1999, when I was baptized into Christ, and at that moment forgiven for my sins because I had repented, I was completely pardoned at that moment. I had total clemency. And all of you, those of you that have been baptized into Christ, you can relate to this. That's the moment where you're, you're just moved and you're motivated to really love others in response to his love, right? I know I felt that at that moment. And I've also felt pardoned at other moments in my life, too. Even before I was a disciple, I think you can, there's moments in your life where you just know you're, you're forgiven by God or, or God's with you. You ever, ever felt that? Um, obviously, most when I was baptized. But, but when I was even a young man, I was thinking about this story when I was in fifth grade. I was walking through my classroom one day, and uh, I was walking down between the rows of the desks, and this boy put his foot out. My arch enemy actually put, put his foot out to try to trip me. So what did I do? I stomped on his foot as hard as I could. And I made him cry. I was chubby when I was a kid, and I was, I was kind of heavy. Right in view of the teacher. And I was sent to the principal's office. Now, Laverne Hugholt was the principal. Laverne Hugholt was a fearsome man. Now, don't let this picture throw you. He, this was taken late in his life, and God rest his soul. I learned in researching him, he's dead now. But, but um, you know, he was a fearsome man when he was younger. I mean, he, he, was, uh, he was just scary, you know, and, and he, he, he was also a chain smoker. He, he was always smoking. He always had a cigarette, and, and he wore this tight suit vest every day, this, this suit vest, the same one, and it fit him very snugly, and it just, just looked like the buttons were going to pop off of it. He was, he was frightening. And I think he got a perverse pleasure from scaring young schoolboys. And now keep in mind, this will be foreign to you if you're a teen, but in the early 1980s, when I was in fifth grade, corporal punishment, meaning whack, 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 spanking, pow pows, was still allowed in school. And Mr. Hugh Holt had a whole selection of paddles from small, medium, large, extra large, extra, extra large, so he could match the punishment with the crime. And they all had holes drilled in them. Now, if you've ever been hit with a paddle with holes in it, you know, you know. I don't know, something about that. I guess it goes faster through the air or something, but it's painful. And I was trembling. I was sitting outside of his office. I was trembling because I was imagining him in his office. And I had never gone to the office. I was a good kid for the most part. But I was trembling out there, and I was just imagining him. You know what goes in your mind when you're awaiting execution, you know? I was imagining him... 
in his office, just smiling and setting his cigarette down and just opening the paddle cabinet and just pondering which one he's going to use. So when he was finally ready to call me, you know, he didn't actually even ask me to come into his office, which I was grateful for because I would have died from the secondhand smoke. But Hugh Holt asked me what had happened. And he was very, very stern as he was. And I was, I was guilty as charged, so trembling voice, I confessed my crime. And here's the amazing thing. He said, okay, Steve Berg, this is your first infraction. You can go back to class. But you would better never be here again. And I was so, I was just so relieved. I didn't have to breathe the smoke. I didn't get the paddle. And this could only be God. Because I knew how much he enjoyed paddling young boys. And let me tell you, I went back to class and I was ready to love that boy who tried to trip me. Believe me. So think about what it feels like to be pardoned. And hold on to that feeling. Because, you know, in a sense, we're all on death row, aren't we? I mean... We can't expect to stand before God on our own. And we, we get glimpses in the Bible of what awaits those who are separated from God. And, you know, I don't want this to be a fire and brimstone sermon, but it is sometimes good to review those scriptures just to be reminded of what Jesus saves us from. And I won't go through them in detail, just jot these down. But Luke 16 is a scary story where Jesus talks about a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? And the rich man goes down into hell because he ignored a beggar laid at his gate. And, and it gives an explanation of what he was going through in hell. First of all, there was a chasm between him and God. He could no longer be in the presence or even talk to God. There was pain, fire, agony, so much so that even a drop of water on his tongue would have felt like relief. That's pretty pain, pretty painful. You know, he talks about, Jesus talks about in Matthew 13, 50, the hell being a blazing furnace. In Mark 9, 43, he says it's better to be maimed than to go to hell where the fire never goes out. In Matthew 13, 42, he says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which connotates pain. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and soul in hell. You know, in Revelation 21, 8, it says hell is a fiery lake of burning sulfur. So you see this theme of, of, of fire and destruction and agony and weeping and separation from God. And just in light of that horrible punishment that could be ours, the pardon that we have through Jesus looks all the sweeter, doesn't it? I mean, if eternity with God is a hard thing for you to imagine, try thinking about eternity without God, where you live in eternal pain. And I think many people, I know before I was a disciple, I didn't want to believe hell was real. I was like, ah, it's a fairy tale. You don't see many movies that are entitled Hell is Real, right? <laughs> Heaven is real. What about hell? But Jesus knew it was real. Right? That's why he talked about it more than anyone else in the Bible. And Jesus loved us enough to go to hell in our place. How does that make you feel? Grateful? Joyful? Motivated? I mean, our, our pardon can be a powerful motivator to love. In 1 John 4, verse 11, it says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if you're not loving and living as Jesus did, do you really understand him? I mean, do you really need to contemplate how amazing it will be in heaven thanks to Jesus? Do you remember what you've been pardoned of? Do you believe how bad your punishment could be if it weren't for the mercy of Jesus? Much, much worse than a paddle in Mr. Heholt's office. You know, in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, it says, We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. You see, we need to fixate 
on Jesus and our salvation every day. And what's translated here as pay most careful attention really doesn't capture the intensity of the Greek word. I've read recently that paying attention may be better translated as obsess, to obsess about Jesus. And I think you'll agree there's a difference in magnitude between paying attention and obsessing, isn't there? I mean, you need to obsess with Jesus. You need to consume yourself with Jesus. You need to fill your soul with his forgiveness, and that will be the motivation to love. There's a reason why God said that that the greatest commandment was to love him with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And and until recently, I'd never had really thought about the difference between loving God with my heart and God with my soul. I don't know if you've pondered that. I mean, to me, as I've thought about it, heart implies more of an emotional love, an emotional connection with Jesus, which we need. But but I'm, I'm learning that loving God with all of my soul is different. My soul means that I delight myself in him that I get my strength and my satisfaction and my fulfillment from Jesus and Jesus alone. You need to ask, what are you filling your soul with? I mean, where do you turn for strength and encouragement? Because your soul is a vacuum. (laughs) It's going to suck in something, and you're going to fill it with something. And and if it's not Jesus, it's going to be worldly things, guys. Um, You can gorge yourself with worldly things and still feel hungry. You know, I've been seeing my sin in this area. I mean, I, I've tried to fill my soul with so many things over the years. Food, you know, when I'm, when I'm stressed out or I'm hungry or I'm tired or I, I just want to just release, I just sometimes just gorge myself with food. Drink, work, social media, entertainment. You know, I've been doing this devotional series called The Lord's Table. I know some of you have done it. And it's a 60-day program where it focuses on how to fill your soul with Jesus. And by doing so, you gain self-control. You gain self-control in your life, including in your eating, in my case. And I've had some real spiritual breakthroughs with this program over the last 60 days. But when I'm filling my soul with the wrong things, I've realized that I get consumed with myself and with my own comfort and with feeding my own appetite and my own desires. And when I'm filling my soul with Jesus, when I'm not filling my soul with Jesus, I should say, when I'm not filling it with Jesus, I, I, I mean, that's when loving feels like a burden feels like a nuisance. You ever felt that way? Be honest. Get that call from somebody at church, like, oh, I don't have to take it. I felt that way at times to my shame because I'm not filling my soul with Jesus. So we must pay most careful attention to what we have heard about him so that we do not drift away. Obsess about Jesus. It's okay. Obsess about him. We can never, ever, ever let Jesus out of our soul. He needs to be in our crosshairs at all times. Love Jesus with all your soul. Remember what he's done for you. Relish it. Remember what you've been pardoned of and what punishment he took for you. And then you will be motivated to really love. And you say, that's great, Mark. I get it. That's why I should love. I get it. My motivation should be Jesus. But tell me, how do I love? What's the practical of giving love and receiving love? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to touch on that a bit now. So how do we give love? The Greek word for love is agape, right? You've heard that before. Agape means to give others what they really need, not necessarily what they want. So again, to know how to love, we should really look look no further than God because God is love. He is the embodiment of love. So God gives mankind agape, what we need, and he redeems us through Jesus, which is by far the most important thing we need, right? But God doesn't leave the little things to chance either. He knows that many of us are going to have to survive on this planet for 80, 90 years, maybe more. And he won't leave us floundering while we're here. Um, 
familiar scripture to many of us, Matthew 6, 33. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And he, by all these things, he means your food, your clothing, your shelter, the things you need to survive. He'll give you those things when you seek the kingdom first and his righteousness first. You see, when we concern ourselves with the most important thing, Jesus and his kingdom, God gives you the little things too. And he cares about the big thing and the little things. But that's amazing love. I mean, notice how God doesn't start by giving us the little things, though. He says, put the big things first. And that's eternity with his son. And he expects that we put the big thing first as well. We should be far more concerned with the creator of life and the crea- his, you know, his church, frankly, than, than with the created things. I mean, we sure can get that backwards sometimes, can't we? Now, I, I was praying with a friend of mine yesterday, and, and we both agreed how many distractions we have in our lives. I mean, we can create endless lists of things for us to do and consume ourselves with. Everything besides Jesus and his church. That's the last thing Satan wants you to think about, right? But it's the most important thing. In 1 John chapter 4, 17, it says, Because in this world we are like him. Because in this world we are like him. And herein lies the key to how we should love. We should be like Jesus. And we can be like him by keeping the big thing, which is God and his kingdom, first place in our hearts. And when we do this, we'll also love people like Jesus loves people. And we'll love people enough to give them what they really need. And like God, we can love others by giving them the big thing. The big thing. And the big thing that everyone needs is Jesus, right? We need to share Jesus with the people around us. We all need Jesus in our life. We need the big thing first and foremost. And I, so, I think, I know I, sometimes I can see people around me in need, and I'm not quite sure how to help them. You know, I don't know what to say. And, you know, I've thought about this, and I, we can always start with the big thing. You can always share Jesus with someone and what he's done for them. And people need to hear it, guys. They need to hear about him. And if they don't hear it from you, who are they going to hear it from? If you're a disciple of Jesus already, go share the good news with people. Help them really understand what Jesus offers them if they become his disciples. And if you're not a disciple yet, or you're not sure what a disciple is, or you don't know if you are one, sit down and study the Bible with us. We will show you in God's word who Jesus is and what he means for you personally. I mean, everybody in our church who's a Christian took the time to study the Bible with other people. To, to really learn about the real Jesus. So, so please, please, please take the time to study the Bible with us and please allow us to love you as God loves you. And let me tell you, sometimes loving people, I've thought about this, sometimes loving people isn't about what you say. I mean, you can love people just by showing Jesus to them. Be Jesus for them. I mean, what do you share with a man who knows he's dying of cancer? I mean, what do you share with someone who just lost a parent? Uh, how do you support someone who just got laid off from their job? Show them Jesus. Be like Jesus and be there for them. Weep with them. Hug them. Share a scripture with them. Encourage them. Bring them a meal. Just be there for them. That's agape love. That's sharing with them the biggest thing of all. Share Jesus by showing Jesus. Share Jesus by showing Jesus. That's how we give love. Let me ask you, are you giving love? Who are you showing Jesus to? I mean, outside of your immediate family unit, that is, who are you prioritizing in your busy life? I mean, are you in a consistent mentoring, what we call a discipling relationship with, with someone else? 
in the church. And if you're not investing in those relationships, guys, it's just not you that you're hurting. It's just not you that you're hurting. You are withholding love from other people who need you. So let's give love as Jesus gave love. I'd also like to touch briefly on how we should receive love. And we all need to be loved, right? We all need to feel loved. We need to be loved. But isn't it true that sometimes we can get attitudes when people don't meet our needs the way that we think they should? Uh, Just because someone isn't performing the way you think they should doesn't mean they don't love you. Sometimes love looks like this, guys. Someone shares with you the truth in the Bible, and then they point you back to God. And they ask you to do the hard work of changing your heart. And then they walk with you as you do the hard work together with God. And it can be very difficult sometimes to receive that kind of love. But that doesn't mean it's not love. And I've reflected on times when I've received real love from people. And I often resisted receiving the love at the time. As I mentioned earlier, when someone hurts me, I can just slowly roast that person over a fire in my mind. (laughs) And in my emotional state, I, I, I don't know if you can write, I begin telling myself stories that aren't even based in reality about that person. They become Satan. And I'm grateful for my wife, Mia, because she loves me enough to snap me out of my sinful mode about being critical about people. And she shares scripture with me. She point blank tells me I'm in sin and I need to change my heart. And I appreciate that about her. Now, she'll say, I don't appreciate it at the time when she's telling me that. I resist. I bristle sometimes. But she's right. And it's love, even though it doesn't feel like it. And Another example, I was recently upset about someone, somebody had said something to me that ticked me off, and Brian Craig loved me enough to say, Mark, you've got to get thicker skin. <laughs> you've got to get thicker skin, especially in the ministry. Go wrestle with that. And in retrospect, I appreciate what he said. He was absolutely right. So, so receiving love sometimes means that we have to take the medicine that God is giving us. And sometimes this medicine comes in the form of people who give us a spiritual reality check and point us back to him. That kind of gift that that kind of love is a gift guys it may not feel like it but it is a gift and i think in some cases folks we have to break the cycle of codependency in our relationships codependency happens when you over rely on other people to break you from the cycle of sin and if you're not careful you can turn to people and expect them to fix you rather than turning to god and the bible says yes we should confess our sins to each other but it's god who does the healing not people. I mean, no person can begin to do for you what only God can do in your life. So when someone points you back to God, receive that for what it is. It's love. Don't get an attitude. Give love and receive love. And we have so many great examples of love in our church. I couldn't even begin. I just pulled out three examples. I just love Celia and Victoria. Celie came back to God a while back, and he just was so faithful in loving his wife. I would go see him at church sometimes. He's like, just keep praying for my wife, bro. She's studying the Bible. I know she's going to become a disciple and faithful. And God blessed his faith because Victoria was baptized a few weeks ago, as we heard last week. Amen. And just the faith of, of so many sisters like Lupita Torres and Lisa Huerta and Kim Hammond and others that were in her life just studying the Bible with her. Just great love. Clay Jackson. You know, I love Clay. He loves people enough. He loves people enough to, on his own, organize a grief recovery class for people who have lost loved ones. I mean, he is showing Jesus to those who are hurting because he knows how it feels to lose loved ones. I love Carlos and Martha Diaz. I think they're up there. Carlos and Martha Diaz, they've stepped up in the Torrance community group that my wife and I lead to be our champions for the poor. 
They've organized for us a couple weeks ago. They organized a, a time where we got together and we made sack lunches for the homeless. We went out and delivered those. So they're showing Jesus to others. That's love. And there are so many other examples I could go on and on. So don't get, don't get attitude. I've left you out. But we've talked about why we should love. We've talked about how to give and receive love. Finally, what will be the outcome when we love? 1 John 4, 16 says, And we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how God is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So John tells us here in just a very few words the very powerful outcomes of agape love. Love truly is the answer to some of our deepest concerns and questions. And most everyone at some point, if you haven't already, you're going to wrestle with your own mortality. And if you haven't already done so, you're going to at some point begin to see the fragility of your life. And you may be concerned at that point about what comes after this life. Many of you have already struggled with this. You, you start to question sometimes your assumptions that you maybe you've made about the afterlife and where you go after you die. And even if you're irreligious, it's hard not to imagine a day where you have to stand before God, your creator, and be accountable for how you lived your years on this earth. And if you read the accounts of God in the Bible, you will know that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, he is to be greatly feared. When God descended on Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, you remember the story, the Israelites were so frightened that they begged God not to even speak to them. They thought if they heard his voice that they would die. That's who God is. And, and John tells us here that there is one way that we can actually have confidence during this terrifying day of judgment that's coming. We can have confidence by living in love. By living in love. Because if we have true agape love for others, John says that we are like Jesus. And my friends, that's our only hope on Judgment Day, living in love. Once again, we see the good news about Jesus. If we follow the example of, of love that he gives us, we'll be able to stand in God's presence someday. And we can be confident that we will survive that judgment. What a gift that is, right? To have confidence on the Day of Judgment. And there's really nothing like it. You think about you know, the confidence that we can have. There's nothing like the funeral of a disciple of Jesus, right? If you've been to one. Because there's no lingering doubt about where that person is after they've, after they've died. I mean, those of us who attended our brother Scott Achia's funeral last summer saw the confidence that we can have. The confidence that can be ours. I mean, a disciple's funeral is full of tears. And yes, they are tears of grief. But even more so, tears of joy. Because we have total confidence in where our brother Scott is. And if we stay faithful, we'll be with him. So confidence before God is an amazing outcome of true love. Do you want to have confidence before God on Judgment Day? Yes? Yes, we do. Love is the answer. Love is the answer. Love as Jesus loved. John also gives us the antidote to our fear in the scripture. I chuckle when I see these bumper stickers that say no fear. Or the shirt, the apparel that says no fear. And No offense if you wear that. That's fine. Um, but... Let's keep it real. I don't think I've ever met a man or woman that has no fear whatsoever. Everybody is afraid of something. You know, afraid of failure, afraid of being alone, afraid of public speaking, afraid of death, afraid of government, afraid of identity theft, afraid of terrorists. 
Afraid of economic collapse, afraid of running out of money, afraid of snakes, afraid of clowns. What are you afraid of? You know, everybody's afraid of something. But John says there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. So it stands to reason that when we think about Jesus and his perfect love, our fears begin to subside. Because perfect love drives out fear. Jesus drives out fear. I mean, if you just spend a few minutes thinking about eternity with Jesus and meditating on that, the troubles of this life are put into perspective, right? And he doesn't promise that your life here is going to be easy or pain-free. But he does promise that he will be with his disciples always to the very end of the age. He does promise that he has overcome the world. And if you follow him, you too will have eternal life. And we live in a very anxious, very worried world that's full of fear. But Jesus is perfect love and he drives out fear. So do you want to diminish your fear and anxiety? I think most people do. Love is the answer. And finally, love, and <laughs> love makes our life in this world so much richer as well. Because when we love the way Jesus loves, our relationships transform, don't they? I mean, if we love each other enough to give each other what we really need, what would marriages look like? I mean, do you want a strong, godly marriage? Do you want strong relationships? Yes? Love is the answer. And there's, we just wrap, we're wrapping up a marriage series called Four Seasons of Marriage, and I think everybody married here has been part of that. And... Uh, you know, it's just really cool to see the, how some of the marriages have really begun to transform from that class. Um, met this week with Anthony and Nancy Sivitanich, who lead our kids' ministry. And they had gone through the four seasons of marriage before. So this was their second time going through it. And they admit the first time they went through it, they didn't invest a lot of time. And they didn't do the homework. And they didn't get a lot out of it. This time, they've worked hard at it. And they've had some tough conversations with each other through this class. And they will tell you, though, that their marriage is so much stronger now than it was before that class started because they're truly working on it and they love each other enough to work on their marriage together. So the outcomes of love, total confidence before God, driving out fears, godly relationships, those three things alone will completely transform your life on earth and your life for eternity. And all of it comes from love. My friends, love is the answer. Love will change the world. So I'm going to close and wrap it up, but You'll see that there's a logical order to this message today. First of all, you have to wrestle with why should you love? If you're not feeling motivated to lay down your life for others, perhaps you should spend some time reflecting on what Jesus offers you, especially in light of what you deserve. And once you're motivated, you can then focus on how to love and look no further than Jesus to know how to love. If you're already a disciple, you know, Share the most important thing with people, the big thing. Share Jesus by showing Jesus. And if you're not a disciple, or if you're not sure if you're a disciple, study the Bible with us and, and ask the person who brought you, and we'll show you in God, God's Word what He wants for your life. And finally, when you have the right motivation, and then you're living like Jesus, you can enjoy the outcome of love. You can have confidence about your eternal future. You can destroy the fear and anxiety that may paralyze you. And you can have amazing relationships on this earth with people that you love. And when we get the why right, we get the how right, we can then enjoy the outcome. And all of this is because we have a God who loved us first and a son who was willing to die for us so that we would feel that love. Love is the answer. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, 
please visit southbaychurch.us.